Today's episode of Socially Democratic is presented to you by Dunn Street. Dunn Street partners with businesses, organisations, unions, and social democratic parties across Australia and the globe to train leaders, develop engagement strategies, and empower people to organise for change. Even though 2020 has presented us with the odd challenge, Dunn Street will continue to work with folks that want to make a difference, inspire, give hope, and enable leadership to achieve their shared purpose. To find out how you can partner with Dunn Street, hit us up at dunnstreet.com.au. And hello, welcome to another episode of Socially Democratic, your favourite centre-left weekly political and cultural podcast that dives into the political issues and the people leading them from home and abroad. On this week's episode, we've got Sammy Schneiderman coming back, your favourite American, as we take a look at the US presidential election campaign and US politics in the backdrop of what's been going on recently in terms of all the protests across all the cities and towns uh, across all 50 states in the US and the implications that has with the general in November, which isn't that far away. So I hope you enjoy today's episode uh, with Sam. Uh, Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Stitcher. And if you're an Apple Podcast user, please leave us a rating and a review uh, and get all the updates on Socially Democratic or even the Dunn Street stuff, follow us on our Dunn Street social media platforms, which is on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Let's get today's episode. We're taping this one on a uh, Monday lunchtime in uh, downtown Melbourne. And joining me on the line from, I think, somewhere in upstate New York uh, to catch up on what's going on in the United States, my good friend. And I w- would almost argue it's becoming a uh, regular co-host, um, Sam Schneiderman. How are you? Good to see you, Stephen. Good to be speaking with you. Indeed. And yes, I am, in fact, in upstate New York. You're so close to the uh, Canadian border. One wonders why you just don't jump across that border and stay there for a while. Good question. Uh the border is not open, so that uh, has been settled for me. <laughs> right, right, yeah, there you go. Because my first question was, um, we, I mean, the last time we spoke, the uh, the Democratic primary had kind of wrapped up, um, where yeah. um, Bernie Sanders had pulled the pin and Joe Biden had become the you know nominee elect, um, and that's kind of where we left it. And uh, coronavirus was really taking hold of certainly at that point. Yeah. We just had a global pandemic to talk about. Yeah. And that was it, right? Uh, a lot's happened since then. A lot has happened since then. Uh, and my first kind of question really is, are we seeing the final days of the great American Republic? Like, is it over? Uh, no, I, I don't think it is over, but in many ways, uh, what is happening in the United States right now is challenging our institutions of representative sort of self-governance in a way uh, and with an intensity that it hasn't since, uh, well, you know, at least in any time after the Second World War. Uh, And that includes the tumult of the 60s, Vietnam War, um, you know, the uh, contested election of 2000, and uh, what we're living through is uh, quite a propitious time here in the United States. This has a real 19, not that I was around in 1968, um, although people do joke and make out that I predate that. Um, this does have a real 1968 kind of vibe about it, though, doesn't it? Well, uh, yes, superficially it does. Uh, it has the uh, political turmoil Uh it has the um, 1968 was a really interesting time uh, in the United States. Uh, it was when the tide of the Vietnam War was turning politically here in the United States, as well as on the battlefield, where it was becoming clear that we were becoming mired uh, in sort of a uh, morass. And on top of that, here in the United States, you had some very significant political assassinations. It was the year that Robert F. Kennedy was assassinated and Martin Luther King. 
And George Wallace uh, was also uh, shot. Um, he was, of course, the racist governor of Alabama who uh, was running to get the um, Republican nomination for uh, president that ultimately went to uh, Richard Nixon. Now, uh, what's also interesting in terms of the parallels between 1968 and 2020 is uh, race and how our relationship with not just race in America, but racism specifically has come to the forefront of a presidential election. 1968, of course, was also the year that um, Richard Nixon ran successfully on the Southern strategy, which played into this whole idea of the term, the silent majority, and the concept of racial resentment uh, among whites, uh, and a fear of um, a, a liberal upswell uh, coupled with, uh, you know, um, racial disharmony and the scenes from uh, riots in Chicago during the Democratic Convention, as well as in Watts. Um, where uh, does that uh, analogy then start to fall apart when we compare 68 to, 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 to 2020? What, what, not that you were in 68 either, but I mean, how does, yeah. it, how does it feel different? Uh, particularly when you look at um, the protests across the United States right now, certainly from what I can see myself and what I'm reading in the reports, the protests that are taking place across all the cities and towns in the United States in 2020, there's a lot more people are remarking on the diversity of the people that are attending these rallies, that it feels like it's this groundswell um, and this mobilization of people to these rallies um, are bringing in all walks of life to to that. And that must be worrying for Donald Trump and for the Republican Party this time around, as opposed to what it was like in uh, 1968. Absolutely. I think while it is very easy to draw parallels between America in 1968 and what's currently happening in 2020, there are some uh, really important differences. For one, um, when Nixon famously ran on the Southern Strategy uh, he did so with this guy named Lee Atwater, who is worth a Google. Uh, Brad Pascrell, who is Trump's uh, campaign manager, is not nearly as cunning, uh, and nor as as Lee Atwater and Trump is obviously not nearly as cunning as Richard Nixon. Uh, but beyond that, I think you know, and that does matter, right? Like I think that Trump's. Uh, incompetence not only as an executive but you know as the steward of a of a political movement will really come uh to to undermine him as we get closer to the election but the idea of this silent majority also has less political potency especially when we look at the way that um there is more social cohesion around the idea of race in the United in the United States now than there was then, and white people and v- white voters have embraced the Black Lives Matter movement with unprecedented speed and at unprecedented scale. Just in 2018 alone, Black Lives Matter was uh, a movement that did not have uh, support among a majority of Americans. Now it is uh, dramatically backed by uh, the by a majority of Americans by 25 percentage points at least um, in terms of net positivity versus net negativity. So like, and uh, that has been a dramatic shift just within two years, and so it's going to be interesting to see what happens uh, in the way that that social cohesion. Um, which is easy to overlook uh, with, you know, images of rioting and, uh, you know, a movement that is nominally about race. It's easy to overlook that it's broadly supported. 
Yeah, when I'm watching the TV and when the riots sort of, sorry, when the, not the riots, when the protests first started and there was sort of a lot of offshoots of the, the, the protests that were leading to looting and a whole bunch of other stuff that's been covered in different ways by different media sources, I wondered about, I, my, one of my thoughts were, okay, well, how does this set up uh, the Democratic Party for the 2020 election in November? Does this, you know, does this spiral out of control that it damages their ability to win? Does this galvanise Trump and his supporter base? Um, where does what is how was Middle America, particularly uh, you know undecided voters in battleground states like the Midwest, uh, like Florida, like Ohio, Pennsylvania? Um, what are those voters? Um, how does this impact on how they're going to vote? when they're watching this stuff on television each day, do they come to the conclusion that um, particularly those voters that might have voted Trump, sorry, might have voted Bush, Obama, Trump, do those voters look at um, the scenes on television and say to themselves, what's happened to our country Um, and do I vote for Donald Trump because he's trying to brand himself as the law and order president? Or do they reject that and say, well, clearly you're not the law and order president because you're in charge right now and our country's burning. So therefore, I'm going to vote for change. I, I, I wondered where that kind of voter was going to go with this momentum that was happening across the country. I want to get your thoughts on that. And there's some polling that's come out that actually has sort of indicated that that's, it's some interesting stuff that is positive, I think, from, from a democratic standpoint. Well, there's no question that, you know, when you look at what's happened uh, with the fallout from uh, the coronavirus pandemic moving into uh, the ascension of the Black Lives Matter movement and really uh, the way that it's occupied our uh, attention over the last two to three weeks, that it is damaging not only for the president, but also for Republicans running for office more broadly. Um, And, you know, again, this sort of, uh, the, I think really the bottom line is that um, it reinforces democratic enthusiasm. So one of the things that you'll const- you'll hear about um, often as a negative for Joe Biden is this th- notion of the enthusiasm gap, uh, where uh, the voters who identify as very excited or enthusiastic about voting for Joe Biden is significantly smaller not only by a historical precedent uh, for other Democratic nominees, but also compared to Trump, uh, the voters that are excited to vote for him. I think at one point it's, it's only 74% of Biden voters were excited to vote for him. But this is made up for by the excitement among Democrats to vote against Trump. Uh, so, you know, I think what we can do is just look at the most recent election that took place here in the United States, uh, which was um, a Democratic primary in the state of Georgia. Democratic voters cast close to a million votes uh, in the Senate primary there, which is more than triple the number of the during this 2016 primary. Uh, Now, uh, what's interesting is that Georgia was also the subject of a massive voter suppression uh, campaign where uh, voting precincts in predominantly black areas uh, had machines that didn't work and hours along along lines and ballots for people who requested to receive them by mail were not sent or never received. Uh, and despite that, Democrats still showed up to, to vote in overwhelming numbers. If you look beyond that, um, Trump is ahead by only two points in the state of Arkansas. Now, uh, Democrat Joe Biden and the Democrats are not going to win the state of Arkansas. But what that means is if that number is true and Donald Trump is only ahead by two points in the state of Arkansas, it means that Republicans are in trouble in a lot of other places. For the first time ever, uh, a Republican senator in the state of Iowa by the name of Joni Ernst is trailing uh, her Democratic challenger uh, by three points. Now, since 2014, she's never trailed any sort of challenger in any type of polling. 
So what's been happening, uh, it, you know, certainly undermines Trump's ability to paint himself as a tough man. Uh, law and order certainly loses its credibility when um, a vast majority of these protests have been peaceful. And then beyond that, the images of violence that you do see uh, generate overwhelming political support against the use of force on peaceful protesters. Um, but I think to me, what is most interesting is the way that the Black Lives Matter movement uh, will shift American politics on the local level. Um, and that that's going to be something to really pay attention to. Yeah, let's pick up on that. Um, reading a number of polls that came out uh, a couple of weeks ago, maybe it was the CNN one that started to break down. Because I, I tend to, I think we've all, I think we've all learned our lesson from 2016 about reading too much into national polls, um, and it's more. Yeah, this, you don't want to do that. Yeah, you know, like, um, and I know that. Um, yeah, for a while we, we don't have a popular vote here in this country, right? So, like the the polls to pay attention to are on a state by state basis. Yeah, and so when that, because uh, I mean, Joe Biden, since he won the nomination for the Democratic Party, has been leading Trump on the national polls, and a lot of the numbers were very, very similar to where Hillary Clinton was against versus Trump um, at this same point. Um, and obviously, we all saw how those numbers then tightened, and obviously, then we have Donald Trump as our president for the next four years. Um, but those state-based polls, interesting numbers coming out of those ones, and I, I don't have them in front of me, but I'm just trying to remember the top of my head. Certainly the ones that they looked at were in those Midwest states that Trump picked up in 2016 that surprised everyone, that sort of blue wall that collapsed, um, particularly paying attention to uh, Wisconsin uh, and uh, Michigan um, and Ohio as well. Ohio for some Democrats, I think maybe two years ago, were thinking it's almost. And I'd when I was over in the states in twenty eighteen, was it or twenty nineteen? In twenty nineteen, I was talking to some folks there in DC, and they were sort of saying, "I don't even know why we got Ohio on our map. Like it's just so far gone now. That's come back to being, you know, within the margin of error, a line ball between Trump and Biden." Uh, we've seen huge numbers turn around in North Carolina in favour of the Democrats, huge numbers turn around for Wisconsin. But also then if you extrapolate those numbers of where the swings are, they vary. Um, in some states, it's um, it's non-college educated white um, men or and or women that are moving towards um, Joe Biden. I think that might have been in the Wisconsin poll. Um, but in um, other, other states like Ohio or like Michigan, it's college-educated college uh, white voters that are moving towards towards Joe Biden. So he's getting a sort of a different mix of voters across different states, um, which I find um, I find quite interesting. What do you draw from a lot of that data that came out of those CNN polls um, last week? Well, I think what uh, is interesting to me is that uh, right now, as things stand. Joe Biden is leading among women by a record margin of 25%. However, he is trailing Donald Trump uh, among men by 6%. Uh, and it's going to be really interesting to see how those, if that holds true, will that be applied to voting patterns, particularly in suburban areas, which is one of, which is uh, sort of the most contested uh, you know, voting, um, voting blocks across the country. Uh, that being said, which is where he did really, I mean, Joe Biden did super well in the primaries. I know it's the primaries, but he really did very well against, uh, Bernie was in the suburbs. Exactly. Uh, and that is really where things unfolded for Hillary Clinton, particularly in states like Pennsylvania and Ohio, uh, Michigan and Wisconsin. Uh, so, you know, on, at least on that front, you know, I'm, if I were Joe Biden, I'd feel pretty sanguine about that. That being said, how is that going to apply to these down ballot races of people running for Senate? And then how does the Black Lives Matter movement and sort of the fevered pitched momentum around it at this particular point in time uh, filter out to things like mayoral races and, and other city, you know, city council type offices? Uh, so uh, there's no question that at least at a top line level, 
Joe Biden uh, has a lot of momentum at this point, certainly from a media narrative uh, standpoint. Uh, from a polling perspective, uh, what he's looking at has to be pretty encouraging. And, you know, I think in the best case scenario for Joe Biden at this point where things stand on June 14th, uh, the map, uh, the 2020 map could shape up to look a lot like 2008 uh, with Arizona replacing Indiana as the uh, sort of um, unexpected uh, traditionally red state that flipped to blue. Uh, one thing that also really spells trouble beyond that Arkansas polling uh, margin that I mentioned earlier for Donald Trump is the fact that uh, Texas is really tight. Mm. Georgia is really tight. North Carolina is really tight. These traditionally have been states that uh, the Republican Party has always been able to rely on. And so when I look at a state like Georgia, uh, what you're really going to be focusing on there is whether or not voter suppression is going to tip the scales in 2020 towards Donald Trump the way that it did in the 2018 gubernatorial race there away from Stacey Abrams uh, and to Brian Kemp. Are we seeing a, uh, particularly with that Democratic uh, primary that was held just recently in the state of Georgia, are we seeing sort of a test case strategy for the Republicans going into the the, the major elections uh, in November in terms of voter suppression? Are they trying out some tactics here that they're going to adopt Oh, I think that those tactics, I think it's an open strategy at this point. Uh, and and uh, they're not going to adopt it. They've been adopted. Mm. Um, you know, I think uh, so when we take a step back and, and look at what obviously happened in Georgia, we also have to think about the fact that there is an ongoing pandemic uh, of a respiratory disease that is spread very easily among large groups of people and indoor places. Uh, there's going to be a strong or there's going to be a huge fight uh, about over um, mail-in voting here in the United States over the coming months and whether or not that uh, states are going to make a move toward adopting a mail-in voting first way of conducting their election business. Now, if that happens, you'll see a lot of uh, Con, uh, a lot of um, fighting around sort of the rules and policies to make that happen. Now, for listeners in Australia, I think one of uh, the important peculiarities of American politics to understand is the hyper-locality of the way that we uh, elect offices in this country under the auspices of federalism. So in, in states, every state has an official whose job it is to sort of oversee the conducting of elections and the management of voting. And that position in all of these states is known as the Secretary of State. Now, the Secretary of State is a politically held office that is voted upon. So what you'll see is that the... Uh, the people who are in charge of managing elections on a state-by-state basis are essentially political representatives. And it is impossible to divorce their policymaking and the decisions that they make from the fact that they have a party affiliation. And this is for Republicans or Democrats. It just so happens that one party is openly for allowing as many people to vote as possible uh, versus another party. We didn't get a chance. To, I went back and looked at my notes from our previous conversation, and there was one topic that we didn't talk about that had just happened uh, in our last podcast, which was the Wisconsin um, election, local elections that were happening. Um, and it was at the height I say it was a height of coronavirus, but I don't know actually when there is a peak in coronavirus in the United States. But at that point, well, actually, I think it's it's becoming uh, it's getting worse. Yes. It's getting yeah. getting worse. Yeah. So, but it, it was like the, this was a serious problem, right? And there was a move by the 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 Wisconsin 
legislator to legis- house to enable the, the more- governor. The governor tried to postpone it. Uh, the state legislature said, no, we don't want you to do that. Um, and the reason why they did that in the state of Wisconsin is because unlike on a federal level in many states across the country, in addition to having offices like uh, our attorney generals and our, dis- our district prosecutors and our state secretaries who manage voting, in many states, uh, the positions of the Supreme Court are also political offices. And that is the case in Wisconsin where voters actually vote for judges to serve terms on the state's Supreme Court. Now, the reason you would think that a Democratic primary in 2020 would not attract so much partisan fighting around how the vote is actually to take place in the middle of a pandemic. However, and this gets to your to the whole thing about voter suppression. The, on the day of the Democratic primary in Wisconsin, there was also a vote for a seat on the Wisconsin State Supreme Court. And uh, the Republican who was the incumbent was in a lot of trouble. And uh, there was definitely a Democrat who was going to... Uh, who looked like he was poised to take the seat. And uh, the state Republican Party uh, and the Republicans who control the state legislature in Wisconsin were adamant about a vote that went forward as scheduled and in person because their bet was that that would depress turnout. Mm. And the more that turnout was depressed, the more likely it was that the Democrat would not prevail in that state Supreme Court election. Now, it just so happened that that Democrat narrowly won like by less than a percentage point uh, and, and takes and will assume that that seat. But I think that sort of gets into the fact that one part, you know, the Republicans very much do not want uh, to, uh, you know, uh, make it easier to vote, uh, when it comes, uh, to living this new reality in the age of coronavirus. And the governor, and I think the, the, the governor in Wisconsin, just to pick up on that one, Sam, as well, the governor in Wisconsin, uh, also tried to extend the date upon which mail-in ballots, uh, or postal votes as we would call them in Australia, uh, could he wanted to extend that date to give voters more time to send in their mail-in ballots, and that got challenged in the Supreme Court of the United States, in which it then the ruling by a majority of the Republicans on the Supreme Court uh, quashed the governor's um, uh, seeking extension. Are you? I'm it's true. I'm worried about that ruling because I'm worrying that that's going to set a precedent going forward because obviously what's going to happen now across a whole bunch of different states is uh, Democrats are going to try and extend uh, um, the opportunity for voters to send in mail-in ballots. And I think that Republicans are going to try and send all of this to the US Supreme Court. And I think that we're going to find that a Republican-stacked Supreme Court now is going to rule in favour of the... Uh, the, you know, the, the, in a, the rule in favor of not allowing voters an opportunity to uh, to vote. Well, I think that, you know, when we talked earlier in our conversation about the parallels and uh, dissimilarities between 1968 and 2020, I think what really stands out to me about this election in particular is that uh, it is really the first time in in I mean, I, 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 you're hard pressed to go back through American history and find a federal level election where concerns about legitimacy and the integrity of the outcome are as well founded as they are in the year 2020. Mm. Now, part of that is by the, um, fact that Donald Trump has made a political calculus to cast doubt 
on the outcome of an election as he has done over the last many, many years. And then beyond that, there is an open voter suppression strategy among the Republican Party across various states. Uh, Our uh, judiciary, not just the Supreme Court, but down through the federal appeals court system and the district courts is viewed uh, with skepticism for being deeply partisan. And um, the scenario that I am concerned about as a citizen is um, with coronavirus being what it is, if there is a large scale shift to uh, a vote by mail system, it's very possible that uh, we will not know who the winner is of this year's election, not only not on the night, but for up to a few days after the actual election. Now, I said at the top of our conversation that, you know, our republic is being tested in a way that it really hasn't been, at least since the Second World War. And a good historical touch point for this would be the contested election of 2000. Now, of course, we all know where, you know, what happened there, but there was a lot of faith in the system because... Ultimately, because of uh, the way the rhetoric that was used not only by Al Gore, but by George Bush. And though it was contested as it was and went up to the Supreme Court, uh, there was an acceptance among the citizenry in the end result. If that sort of chaos uh, happens here in 2020, um, I think that's much more concerning. The other thing I want to think, you were talking about the importance of this election um, and you painted a pretty dreary kind of picture of things are tight on election night, which I do worry about. And 2020 has been such an insane year that, you know, uh, I wouldn't discount any kind of crazy scenario um, in terms of what happens on election night and whether Donald Trump accepts a result if he was to lose. But the importance of this election uh, given that there's a census happening and redistricting will be occurring as well, um, I, I just think that not only is the um, getting rid of Donald Trump out of 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue such an important component to this, but here is a great opportunity for the for the Democrats to take back control of the Senate, uh, to give themselves a bigger buffer in the House, but also those down-ballot races, um, not just state houses, uh, which is so important when it comes to redistricting of boundaries after the the uh, after the census, but now certainly from the Black Lives Matter campaign, the focus has really started to come upon electing uh, what the color of change are referring to as champion prosecutors um, in this mm. in this uh, you know with, you know with, with all of these protests going on around the country, eventually folks are going to want to start to see some change. Um, yeah. in, in, in your policing laws uh, and the way that your police conduct themselves. Um, you know, what, I just want to get your thoughts on that. And I'm very cognizant. I don't want to have a conversation today about Black Lives Matters in that, you know, two middle-class white guys talking about it. I want to stay away from that um, and more so about the sort of con- continue with the conversation that you and I have been having now for the better part of six months about the politics and he- heading up to the election. Sure. Uh, but just talk yeah, about the well, significance I- of this uh, 2020 campaign. This is so, so important. For so many reasons. Well, I said earlier, you know, like one of the things that mo- that's most interesting to me is the way that this Black Lives Matter movement uh, shifts American politics at the local level. So one of the things that we've talked about is the way that we vote for every sort of level of office here in the United States. Uh, there's an old joke that we'll vote for a town dog catcher. And you do. Um, and you do. <laughs> yeah, we, that is a thing, I guess. Um, So one of the positions that we vote for here in the United States is uh, our local prosecutors called district attorneys. And the politics around that uh, over the last at least 30 years have been sort of this tough on crime, lock people up, uh, and, you know, really sort of the heir to the 
1994 crime bill, three strikes and you're out sort of politics. Now that has shifted definitely within the last two years uh, and is a testament to uh, the grassroots power of the Black Lives Matter movement. So there has been a shift towards an openness for progressive style prosecutors who want to reduce the prison population, who want to look at uh, alternatives for incarceration as uh, a way to sort of deal with criminality. Uh, and people who look, you know, want to be focused on restorative justice. If Australians are looking for a couple of names to look up, I encourage you to look at Cheza Boudin in San Francisco, who dramatically uh, reduced the prison population there um, even before COVID-19 hit, and who is uh, a child of one of the people in the weather underground. And then another person to uh, look at is Tiffany Caban, who ran unsuccessfully uh, for district attorney in Queens and uh, is closely associated with AOC. But these were sort of the highest profile progressive prosecutors. And that whole movement towards looking towards restorative justice, alternatives to incarceration, and a reduction in uh, prison population is something that is has widespread popularity now just in the last two to three weeks after the um, uh, ascendancy of into the mainstream of the black lives matter movement beyond that i'm really interested to see how this is going to impact mayoral and city council elections the reason for that is because uh police unions in this country have traditionally been untouchable for decades have been very potent on the, uh, you know, have been very powerful uh, politically on especially the local level. And so you're going to have a lot of mayors and city council members who are going to be forced to take a stand on whether or not they want to defund and abolish the police. Uh, and it'll be interesting to say, see how that plays out. It's such now, a, sorry, Giga, sorry, Sam. Hmm. Well, no, no. You, oh, I was just—I was just going to say it's uh, picking up on that point. Abolishing the police last year, when uh, I took the um, uh, Dunn Street U.S. delegation uh, mission over to the states, and we had a meeting in Washington. Uh, no, it was in New York, actually, at the head office of the ACLU. And it was the very first time I ever heard of the term or referencing to abolishing police. And yeah. there was ten of us, eleven of us in the room, all Australians. In fact, one of those in the room was a former um, ministerial advisor to the police minister in the Victorian State Government. <laughs> and oh, wow. all of us, no one said anything in the room at the time when they mentioned about the abolition of the police. All of us thought we misheard what the ACLU advocate had said. And I myself thought, oh, no, she didn't say the abolition of the police. Um, why would you do that? That sounds, that sounds insane. Um, and I don't want to, <laughs> you know, if I had a bit more... Courage, I would have said, excuse me, sorry, did you just say abolition of the police? But I didn't want to say that because I don't want to be the idiot that then asked the dumb question in which she would have said, no, of course not. Why would I say that? What are you, an idiot? No, no, no. no, no. And afterwards we walked out, we all looked at each other and said, did they just advocate abolishing the police? So from an Australian standpoint, that was baffling. Uh, now I wish I could go back into that room and go, all right, can we please unpack that? Uh, yeah. And I've spent yeah. a lot of time in the last sort of four weeks reading more about this concept, um, also defunding the police. Can you talk a little bit more about what exactly all of that means? It doesn't, um, I don't think it speaks to exactly what we would interpret it being, but it certainly goes some way to changing the way in which we you fund the police in the United States, but also talk about the way that the police is set up initially, because it is fundamentally different to how it is in Australia. Just give your thoughts on that. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a really good story to tell because I think a lot of people here in the United States uh, had have had sort of the similar reaction. So I think what is unique about the United States is um, the extensiveness of police here in this country. So broadly speaking, in Australia, there are two levels of police. There's the federal police and there's the state police. 
can you please confirm that? Oh, I can. I can. I can confirm that. Good. I want to make sure I'm right on that. Here in the United States, we have uh, way more layers of police. We have school district police. We have county police. We have city police. We have state police. We have the FBI. We have um, the Bureau of Prisons. We have drug enforcement, uh, alcohol, tobacco, and firearms agents. We have uh, investigators of uh, financial crimes. All We have police for not only the Secret Service, uh, there's the Federal Reserve Police, there's the FBI Protective Service, there's the Federal Protective Service. So there's all these levels of policing, and it is impossible to look at American policing and not acknowledge the level of militarization within it and to look at the uh, sort of materials that are being used and how they are basically the same things that we provide our military. Uh, So, I mean, there's a great story where uh, the Los Angeles County School District Police has said they're going to give up their grenade launchers, but not their armored vehicles. <laughs> and you're just like, wait, did I hear that right? The LA County po- school police has grenade launchers and armored vehicles, mm. but it is true. And, uh, and even, so to the, even, talk- to the, even to the smaller end of the scale, like when you go to the States, the time, all the times I've gone over there, I've always been absolutely baffled. Whenever you see any civil construction site in the United States, there's a cop car there. Or if there's any roadworks, there's a cop car there just sitting there. There's a guy in the cop car just sitting there when there's construction work. What, yeah, what a waste well, of a resource. What is, that, what is that police officer doing? Why well, do they need to be there? I, th- I can't speak on that one, but uh, maybe pre- preventing people from stealing the copper wiring. I don't know. <laughs> uh, but, you know, when we talk about um, – when there's talk of in the United States, there's also the, we talked about this militarization, right? But police are also de facto social workers in many cases, where if there is someone in distress, whether they're homeless or they're mentally ill or whatever is happening, or you needed to get a snake out of your house, I saw that today in the newspaper, you call 911 and they dispatch the police and the police deals with it. Mm. And that's not an effective way for dealing with society's problems. And when you couple the fact uh, that police are the first responders to many of our social issues with the fact that they're excessively militarized, uh, you end up with uh, way too much violence and you end up with this – state that is not responsive to its people's needs and that really speaks to a lack of investment in social services in this country and so i think the move the the movement for abolition or defunding of the police is really a movement towards marshalling those resources away from militarization of our police and a shrinking of our police getting more accountability of our police and putting some of that resource, a lot more resources into different professionals who can handle our societal issues that we ask police to deal with. We're at a moment right now, I think, where there's similar parallels to perhaps um, gun, the, 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 the national conversation around uh, gun reform after Sandy Hook. I was going to say that. Yeah, I was actually, yeah. Are we like, uh, but as we've seen with uh, legislators' attempts to reform your gun laws in your country, it falls short. Um, mm. Are we, I fear... Like I, we're at this moment again, but when it comes to um, not just policing in the United States, but also you know addressing systematic racism on so many levels of government, we're at this moment again where I think that the national conversation is moving into a space where okay, let's identify some of the problems that we can change through legislation at all various levels of government. 
Um, you know, I'm a glass half full kind of guy, but I worry that are we going to see similar kind of repeat performance um, with the way that you guys have addressed gun reform? Like you're looking at um, the Demo- the Republicans in 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 the con- in Congress, certainly in the Senate. There are so many bills just sitting there right now that are not getting addressed by Mitch McConnell and his mates. Um, I just mm-hmm. fear that at a national level, anyway, um, the same is going to happen. There's 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 going to be um, this intransigence from the Republicans on this and just sort of thinking, oh, let's just ride this out for the time being and then go back to the status quo. What, what's your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think this you know, shows the paradox of American politics where there's this real groundswell of urgency at a local level where there's already been a lot of change. I mean, uh, the, Minnesota, the Minneapolis City Council has already voted to abolish the police uh, and there's been a lot of change at the local level already across the country. Um, on a national level, you know, the our system just moves very slowly. Look at what happened um, after the massacre at the mosque in New Zealand and the way that that country responded with sensible gun reforms, or even more recently in Canada. Uh, with a mass shooting there. And uh, here in the United States, our uh, political process can really slow things down. And so, um, you know, after Sandy Hook, there was a real effort to get something meaningful done. On, but on a federal level, you know, it was, it was pretty watered down. Uh, background checks and no, wep- no ban on assault weapons. And public opinion was squarely behind it, but the legislative politics couldn't couldn't be worked out, and it failed. And this is a similar thing that we've seen on a lot of issues in the United States, uh, particularly also on immigration. Uh, so we'll see what happens here, but there is now a big uh, legislative fight on police reform, specifically around this idea of qualified immunity uh, that police have. And... Uh, you know, it's going to be interesting to see whether or not political pressure can be sustained to achieve a meaningful outcome here. Do you think that the Democrats have had an inability to wedge um, Republicans in districts that are vulnerable at the moment? I mean, they they, they must be feeling the blowtorch right now um, between, you know, Donald Trump tweeting about them and their fear of then just by him simply tweeting about a Republican congressperson and saying, you know, you're dead to me. <laughs> and then therefore they're worried they're going to lose the next, the next election. But at the same time, pressure coming from more local people leveraging those, uh, those Congress people and saying, Hey, you've got an accountability to the electorate. You're up for a re-election in November. Um, here is, there is a mass swell of uh, sentiment, uh, what, what in in your electorate? Sorry, in your in your constituency, um, in your district, saying we want we want change, and you've got to vote. And if you don't vote this way, then we'll vote you out. I just don't get a sense that there is a lot of. I mean, there's a little bit of that going on, but not enough. I can't feel a wedge being driven right through like a truck through the middle of Mitch McConnell's um, uh, Republican-dominated Senate at this point in time. Yeah, no, I, I don't think that there there is. And I think that sort of speaks to not only the political discipline of Mitch McConnell and Senate Republicans, but also uh, the issues that, um, you know, politics has fought on here in the United States. And, uh, you know, keep in mind that uh, what is happening now here, specifically with regards to police reform, uh, is pretty significant in terms of the way that the politics around it have shifted from 2016 when Colin Kaepernick was taking his, doing his kneeling during the national anthem and was sort of excommunicated from the National Football League to now where streets across the country are literally having Black Lives Matter painted on them and there's thou- hundreds of thousands of people on the street. So uh, I think that... Um, you know, despite there being broad public support for this movement, the devil is in the details. And, um, 
that broad support can wither away depending on whatever solution is being discussed. Uh, so I, I think on that point specifically, it'll be interesting to see whether or not, uh, you know, Republicans are, are going to move away and particularly over the next two to three months, what political cap- capital does, uh, Donald Trump still have left? Um, yeah, I guess it speaks to the importance for American citizens, uh, to get out there and vote as well. And, vote down the ticket um, and get people yes. into various levels of government that are actually going to enact change around a whole bunch of issues that have been raised. And, you know, and not just Black Lives Matters as well, beyond that as well. I mean, I think that the coronavirus has also identified some of the systematic inequalities in, in America right now between the rich and the poor. Um, and Certainly. Uh, yeah. And uh, here's, a, here's a, a, an opportunity, a, a coalescence of urgency across the country that can bring about change. Now, the man to do that or to lead that is Joe Biden. How do you think he's going so far since uh, we last spoke? Well, I think when he, uh, when we last spoke, I was concerned about his lack of re- digital reach. You know, Donald Trump sort of, uh, to mix a metaphor here, owns the airwaves on the internet. Uh, now, that being said, uh, Joe Biden has benefited from Trump's uh, blatant idiocy and the media's focus on it. Uh, And one thing that's going to be interesting is that the next big media attention that Joe Biden is going to get will largely be positive, uh, which is the selection of his running mate. So it'll depend on how that goes and how it's rolled out. But that being said, everyone is sort of like Trump's, blessing and curse is that he's a magnet for attention the news media loves him and they have been laser focused not only on his response to the pandemic but also to his response to uh the black lives matter movement and when you couple those two together uh the outcome hasn't been very been very good uh and then you know beyond that uh the economy is uh, also not doing well here in the United States. And the best case scenario is that unemployment is at 9% at the year's end. Uh, So Joe Biden certainly has a lot of things going for him. uh, But, you know, the, uh, the risks are still very much present. And that is uh, his lack of reach online and a considerable uh, disinformation campaign that uh, is also uh, going to be played out over 2020. Yeah, it's it's been interesting to watch the the um, the way that Trump has handled everything, really, from the start of the pandemic back in uh, sort of you know early March, I guess. Because those White House, because because he was restricted to the White House, he couldn't do the Trump rallies, which I think he gets. I think he gets a lot of good media out of. But also, I think it's a good it's a good rallying call for himself. I think he gets energy from those from those rallies, um, and he got restricted to just doing these. So I think he thought that well, what I'll do now is I'll do these briefings on a daily basis, which I don't think originally they intended to do. I think I think that this is something that was just sort of developed on the run. But eventually, these started to turn into a complete disaster. As it was so much of his presidency. Well, absolutely. You know, I know. But, yeah, he's a kind of president camp. He's like a campaigner that feels out what he thinks is good and what's not good. I don't think there's a strategy behind it, but he sort of goes, okay, that's working. I think one of the significant parts about uh, his uh, rallies is you're right. He does develop, he does get a lot of free media out of it. But these rallies place him above accountability in the sense that he's in front of a adoring crowd that is zealous in their passionate support for him. And cable news will sort of cover it uh, uninterrupted and are on him like, you know, a bug to light. 
And um, now that he hasn't had that outlet, people have begun to look at him with more of a lens of accountability. And people are starting to judge things like his response to the coronavirus, his handling of the economy under uncertainty and his ability to lead the nation through a tumultuous period. And without that crowd that he personally derives energy from, but also which uh, validates televisually uh, a lot of the rhetoric that he espouses, um, you know, that, that's a real, uh, that's the real sort of, uh, uh, peril for him. And the fact that when the protests happened, uh, there was definitely nowhere he could go. Like he kind of got like, I mean, the guy retreated to his bunker for God's sake, like this, like he's, he's really retreated. He's really absent in leadership. And I feel that this is a great, like if Joe Biden, the Democrats cannot, can't construct an argument to the American voters in November or from now until November in which they can say to voters, Hey, we get it. We understand why you voted for Trump four years ago that that makes sense to us so you kind of give him a bit of agency there but i but you would have to agree with us that when you voted for donald trump you didn't think that unemployment would be up around nine percent which is around was it 20 million people out of out of work you didn't think 110,000 of our citizens 110,000 of our citizens had died at a pandemic that probably could have been prevented you didn't think that our cities and towns would be divided and burning and protests and looting and you know like he's he's mentioned this, he projected himself as being strong and 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 tough, but he's actually just gone missing. If we can't construct an argument based around that to say to voters it's okay to change your vote this time around, then you know you've almost got to pack up and give up, really, don't you? And I know that there's going to be things like, you know, they'll they'll play every kind of card as they possibly can. Voter suppression. They'll take things through the various courts. Um, you know, they'll they'll do a lot of misinformation strategy online. Um, all of that kind of stuff. That's all going to happen and that's going to be really, really challenging. Um, but if they can't make a fundamental argument to, you know, those uh, what I call Bush, Obama, Trump voters to either don't come out this time or come out and flip your vote, then I just, I don't know. I put my hands in the air. Well, there's an element of that to be sure, Stephen, that, you know, those voters are, are ones that you want to go after, but certainly also you want to expand the electorate and, the electorate, it, it, no two elections feature sort of really the same electorate, and uh, that's where organizing becomes so important. You've got to be able to bring new voters into it, register them, and turn them out, uh, especially voters that sat out last time. And you know, people talk about uh, this, you know, Obama Trump voter, but I think what we're going to now see is that there are a lot of lifelong Republicans who are going to defect away from from Trump this time, and so the uh, focus on that mythical Obama Trump voter, while very important, uh, is not the end all be all. And I think what we're going to be seeing is a lot of sort of uh, uh, establishment Republicans defect from the party and potentially support Joe Biden, who is significantly more palatable to a broader, to, to those types of voters than was uh, Hillary Clinton or yeah. even Obama. Yeah. And, uh, actually, you make a really good point there. I guess what I, in, in, in my analysis of focusing on the, those undecideds or those, those persuadables, I'm just actually assuming that, the Democratic base, if they are not motivated, I mean, I, I'm not suggesting you don't do a turnout election. Obviously, you do do that, right? But if the Democratic base are not motivated to turn out and vote in this election of all elections, then, you know, come on. Well, I think you, you definitely are seeing that. Uh, and I go back to, to what happened in Georgia with, uh, you know, turnout being there three times what it was in 2016 for a primary. So uh, this is... This is, you know, this is, election is absolutely a referendum on Donald Trump, and it's going to be interesting to see, um, you know, how it turns out, obviously. But Trump inspires visceral reaction, um, and that's, that's what he really counts on. And so there's a lot of uh, – there's a significant portion of the, of the Democratic voting base 
that while they may not be particularly enthused about voting for Joe Biden, uh, would walk over coals to vote against Donald Trump. Mm. Well, we shall see. Uh, it is a long way to go as well, and that's the other thing I have to keep on reminding myself. Like, it's only June 15. Um, we've still got Well, some- I mean, yeah. So in the in the first six months of this uh, election, you know, of this year, uh, we had uh, the uh, debacle of the Iowa caucus where they couldn't count the results properly. Uh, we had the... Uh, Joe Biden's campaign was on death's door and then miraculously came back. You wrote it off. We had, oh, I totally did. Uh, And as did a lot of other people. Uh, We had an unforeseen uh, global pandemic, the cratering of the United States economy. Uh, We've had uh, unprecedented um, sort of uh, turnout in American streets to protest not just for civil rights, but against ingrained institutionalized and systemic racism in this country, which I think is, is, is very significant. Um, and so it'll be really interesting to see what happens over the next six months. I think you can certainly expect a fever pitched battle over how voting happens Uh, You can expect uh, a debacle around um, the conventions and uh, Trump starting up his rallies again, particularly in states uh, where coronavirus cases are on the rise. And um, I think you're also going to be uh, seeing a lot of dissatisfaction with Congress's inability to uh, address sort of the dire economic needs um, that have resulted because of the pandemic. Well, one last question before we wrap up the um, the conventions. How do, do you have any any insight into, particularly for the Democrats, how they are going to organize this in a corona environment? I don't know how it's going to happen on the uh, Democratic side. I can imagine that um, it's, they're probably pretty close to not doing it in person uh, for the simple for two very simple reasons. One is uh, the logistics behind pulling an event off at that scale uh, with such little time uh, to be able to do it, and with uh, a significantly smaller staff. Uh, presence is is almost insurmountable. It's almost impossible to do that. Uh, and then I think the Democrats just don't want the political risk of getting a bunch of people together in an indoor environment, chanting and screaming, and potentially uh, risking a major outbreak, uh, not only in Milwaukee, where the event was supposed to take place, but in other places when uh, convention goers go back home, Mm. you know, Democrats are obviously running to be uh, responsible stewards of government and the economy. And that's sort of undermined if uh, you know, you're saying we're going to manage coronavirus well and capably uh, that's undermined when uh, you bring a bunch of people together like that. So on the democratic side, I, I'd sort of be putting my money on a on a above 50% chance that it does not go off in person. And part of me also thinks that this is a really good opportunity for Joe Biden to make up some ground uh, in the digital sphere and really extend his reach on social media platforms and through digital media. And for the Republicans, it is uh, too irresistible for Trump to not ha- have a uh, the RNC convention, right? And uh, is, uh, it was scheduled to be in North Carolina, from memory, and now it is scheduled to be in North Carolina. Yes, which uh, just said that they can't guarantee uh, Donald Trump's campaign that they're going to be able to have a full scale rally indoors because of uh, a few reasons. Again, sort of like. Uh, the ability to support it um, with uh, businesses being open at the 
rate that they are. And then also uh, for the very obvious health risk reasons. Uh, you know, it's the converse of what I just mentioned with the Democrats and Joe Biden. Uh, Donald Trump is trying to strong arm his way through this election and anything that forces him to stop and surrender uh, the optics of being in charge to sort of the coronavirus pandemic uh, just is not politically uh, wise for him, which is why they are pressing forward and urging uh, uh, and planning to have a in-person uh, convention in now in Jacksonville, Florida, mm. where I might point out cases uh, are significantly on the rise in the state of Florida. That's insane. Anyway, shall we, are we done? Shall we leave it there? Have we, have we, have we covered off everything we wanted to cover today? Because we've done a fair bit. We have done a, a fair bit. Yeah, I think, uh, I think we are, are done. It was great talking to you. Yes, likewise, always. And I will uh, we'll touch base soon. Take care. Bye-bye.